This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste. Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I hope they're all listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And that intersection has never been more important. We are today... uh, Recording this on Zencaster, we have been recording this show remotely since March March 16th, I think, 2020. We are now in October 20th, 2020, and we're still experiencing and living with the pandemic. And it has really proven a challenge, but also been very enlightening in many ways, specifically when we think about our food system, food sources, how we get things uh, on a global scale, on a local scale, and really in a very intimate way of how we are eating and feeding ourselves and our families at home. We've taken the opportunity to go back and talk with some of our past guests. Now that we're recording remotely, we can have people from around the world on the show. We used to require everyone come to our Heritage Radio Network studio, which was inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and have a live face-to-face conversation many times with beer and pizza. Those were the olden days, and they were great. But being online means we can talk to people out in California and in Texas, like we're doing today. We have brought back uh, two familiar voices, Chris Raleigh and Austin Manis, who are respectively CEO and COO of a company called Harvest Returns. We first had them on the show back in March 2019. That's episode 168, if you want to go back and find it. And they are a very interesting crowdsourcing platform for agricultural investments. And in the food tech space and in the entrepreneur space, we talk so much about how critical fundraising is, how important it is, how there are some... Uh, you know, biases and how it's difficult for sometimes certain demographics and types of founders to get funding. But funding, as we all know, is one of the critical pieces to moving a project forward. And we've often talked about Kickstart, Kickstarter, GoFundMe, uh, iFundWomen, any number of online spaces that, you know, sort of build together a community to raise funds for interesting projects, important projects. And this is really one of the first crowdfunding platforms for agriculture and farms. And it was so interesting. We had them come on and farms and where your food comes from have been so critical and such a a top line item in the stories that we've been reading these past few months. I thought it would be a great idea to check back in with them. And I don't think we'd be surprised to find out they've been quite busy and, um, They have been, I think, a a bright spot in the economic story and in the financial story in that they have been doing very well. So, Chris, Austin, I want to welcome you back to the show, albeit remotely. Thanks, Jennifer. It's great to be back. So tell us what you've been doing in the past, oh, year and a half since we last last spoke with you and actually last saw you. We don't get to see you this time, but we get to hear you. Has the business been growing on track with what you had in mind? Has we we found from many um, many entrepreneurs that their roadmap has 
not changed. It has just accelerated exponentially these past seven months. Well, I'd say we're on track. I'm not sure that I envisioned uh, us getting here the way we have, but it's been an interesting ride. Um, COVID, as everyone knows, has been a shock to all parts of our economy and society. And one of the things I think we first saw when uh, the pandemic hit was shelves, groceries and supermarket shelves starting to empty of of not only things like toilet paper, but things like like meat and, and produce. And I think that was a big surprise to many consumers who have taken for granted that uh, we live in a land of abundance and our food system always produces what what we need or what we want. And when that didn't happen, I, I think people are starting to reconsider the way food is grown and how it's grown and, and how we've optimized our food system in such a way to get produce and, and meat and things like that on our shelves just in time. Uh, from all over the world. And and I think what we're starting to realize is that's maybe not sustainable. It might be very efficient and, and cost effective, but it's not necessarily sustainable. So um, as that relates to our business, we've, we've had some great success with a couple of different verticals, one being locally grown produce and indoor agriculture, and the second being um, regional producers of grass-fed meat. And there's there's a lot of reasons that for that. And I hope we get to dive into them on on why we like um, grass-fed products, why it's sustainable for the environment, while economically it makes a lot of sense, and and from a supply chain perspective as well, um, working with smaller livestock uh, producers rather than uh, large industrial-scale operations. Well, hopefully we're going to get to squeeze in as much of that as possible. One of the I guess, uh, happy problems that we have on this show is we never quite seem to have enough time to get to all of it, but we get to most of it. Let's let's go back before um, we get to the, um, the agriculture and the farming. Let's talk first about the supply chain. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, people did start to see empty shelves and we are still seeing, you know, empty shelves are randomly stocked and it's a little bit different from what we're used to here in the United States. And it really, you know, I would articulate it as being a two-part problem. One part being um, agriculturally, there is still a huge amount of product, produce, meat being produced in the United States. And one of the initial problems was simply supply chain, getting it from the producer's to the shops, um, and notably, um, there you know there was a big flour shortage was one thing, and I was reading an article that it wasn't that the mills didn't have flour; they didn't have any more small five pound packages to put it into to send it to consumer stores. They had the big two hundred pound, hundred pound sacks to go to institutional use. So there, you know, there were you know logistical issues getting it from one place to the next. So there was domestically. Um, you know, certainly things available, but it was the supply chain. But then I think what you touched on also, um, which we'll talk about later, is the global supply chain. And then when that chain breaks and we are so reliant um, on farms and agriculture from outside the United States, New Zealand, Australia, I think of those as being places where it's so random, but you see, you know, so much um, grass-fed meat coming from that part of the world, see a lot of apples coming from that part of the world and things like that. So when we had those breakdowns in terms of distribution also, um, that was a big problem. You are specifically interested in, well, you actually do have a couple international projects, but so tell us then how sort of the regionality or the availability and the distribution piece fits into Harvest Returns and, and the businesses that you work with. Yeah, um, we have done a few international uh, offerings, and those are generally for commodities that can't be grown in the United States, like like cocoa, for example. But um, as it relates to our, our beef products, you mentioned that the vast majority of our grass-fed products are imported from all the way from Australia or New Zealand, and, and yet we have hundreds or a thousand, if not millions of acres of pasture land here in the U.S. that can be used for producing these products. 
although a lot of it is actually being used to to grow other other food. Um, and there's, I think we'll we'll talk about that more on how we can build more sustainable soils by uh, intensive grazing with livestock. But we we like uh, grass fed because most of the producers are fairly small and they use local packing and processing plants, which means that during uh, the height of the COVID pandemic, uh, I'm sure most of your listeners saw that, that the large plants had outbreaks like, like Tyson plants and they had to shut down and that caused uh, interruptions to the meat supply chain. And when we work with local producers who are using smaller regional uh, packing and processing plants, they don't have necessarily those disruptions. So it, that's one of the main reasons that we like the grass-fed sector. Was that something you were anticipating focusing on a year ago or, you know, almost two years ago when we first had you on the show? Or is this something that has come to the front of the line in terms of your interest in supporting it? Yeah, it's definitely um, picked up. We've been looking at the sector and we did our first grass-fed livestock cattle notes probably two years ago, uh, fall of 18. And now we get quite a few uh, inquiries from regional producers that, that want to raise capital. And most recently with uh, Kevin and LFM, his operation out in Southern California. So this is a perfect time to introduce uh, Kevin Muno, who is the president of um, Landscape Function Management and also uh, came to Harvest Returns with a pastureland project farm in California. Um, uh, Kevin, I'll let you describe your business and how you discovered Harvest Returns and, and what inspired you to uh, reach out to them and hope to work with them. And And I'll note that you know, we don't necessarily talk a lot about farming on this show, although recently just because of the sort of technological online platforms that have now become so available to the agriculture world um, and help them transact business in so many ways, one of the top line trends in food tech has been protein, plant-based protein, plant-based protein replacements. Um, everything from different kinds of milks to beefs to eggs to cheese to butters. And we've covered a bunch of them on the show. And uh, the, the, the foremost reason that most of these entrepreneurs are getting into plant-based protein substitutes are because of the environmental reasons. There's not really a single one of them that comes from a culinary background um, or a religious background per se um, or a nutritional background. They're really all primarily um, environmental-based, that reducing animal um, farming on the planet will help resolve some of the environmental issues. And this uh, counterpoint, I think, of using agriculture, farm, livestock agriculture to balance the environment is one that we have not really heard very much about, but my guess is that um, we will start to hear much more Mm -hmm. about. So, Mm -hmm. Kevin, that's a really long introduction. Um, Mm -hmm. But just take us back very simply. Tell us about your your Pasturelands project and how you discovered Harvest Returns and and how you got um, into business with them. Sure, definitely. Well, I'll start out by just thanking you, Jennifer, for having me on the show. It's great to be on with with Chris and Austin. And um, yeah, I'm I'm actually a first-generation farmer and rancher. I... uh, was a baseball player in college and much like maybe many of your listeners trying to migrate their way over to healthier eating uh, as an athlete I got really into eating paleo and grass-fed meats and the farther I went into our food system the, the 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 farther I went down the rabbit hole and the more I learned that our food systems really messed up and I think uh, Chris touched on a, a lot of the reasons there of, of why, of, of the consolidation, of the decline in soil health, of the decline in the nutrient density of food. So the farther I went down uh, my Alice in Wonderland story, the uh, the more I, I felt called really uh, to, to do something about it. And so when my baseball career ended in college and I looked at uh, careers I wanted to go into, I, I got 
immediately into food and really um that was in uh, 2011 I graduated college and I'm 32 years old today and uh um the 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 project with Harvest Returns has really been the culmination of of a a 9 year 10 year dream really uh that I've had to start a large scale regenerative ranching operation here in California and um and we were super grateful and, and, and honored to, to work with them. We raised a little bit of seed funding uh, to purchase a cattle company. And uh, Harvest Returns came in with the funding that we needed uh, to really take it to the next level and scale. So it was a great process all the way through. Uh, it was awesome, you know, to, to come across them. Really, uh, it was me, I think, Googling um, equity crowdfunding for farms and came across their name and, and reached out and, we happened to be in a vertical that uh, was was pretty hot for them at the moment or has been at least for the last few years. And so, yeah, we were successful with that uh, fundraise uh, close to a, a few weeks ago now. And uh, we're deploying their capital to buy more cattle and to commence our regenerative ranching operation. And, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're starting uh, to, to move animals around in a way that mimics nature and builds soil and you know, happy to talk about that a little bit more about the the positive and regenerative effects of of livestock on the land, and uh, you know, specifically address some of the the introductory points that you had there, Jennifer. So that's a that's a great story, and also the fact that you that your pivot point into you know agriculture and food was at, from an athletic point of view i think now so many people especially after you know 7 months of a of a global health crisis people are so focused about what they eat and i think we saw you know organic food and um you know organic free range natural all those kinds of things were the sort of gateway into people being more considerate about the food that they eat and making choices about that. The grass-fed beef is so interesting, the way um, the health community and the keto community and the paleo community and all the different sort of eating styles have really put an emphasis on grass-fed, you know, meat, grass-fed dairy, and all those kinds of things. So that's an interesting sort of parallel storyline in terms of interest but before we, we, we jump fully into what the grass-fed piece is, talk a, I, 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 one, of, one of you talk a little bit about how common is it for crowdfunding for ranching? And my very, very basic understanding of some of the regenerative farming points have to do with economics. Um, have to do with um, people perhaps running out of money to subsidize their the chemical or the different you know additives that they would need to put into the land. People wanting to uh, perhaps tip into businesses like this, but is it very common to be crowdfunded for a farm or a ranch project? And how important is funding in the agriculture business in this in in the U.S. right now? Chris or Austin, you guys want to jump in on the crowdfunding piece and I can handle the popularity of it maybe? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, uh, uh, reference the, the popularity of it. So the, the kind of, and this is, Jennifer, kind of why, how Harvest Returns, you know, comes into existence when, you know, there's a need, but there's nothing fulfilling that need. When you're talking about like a grass-fed operation or, or something like what Kevin's doing with, with the regenerative piece of it, um, the, the banking system or the financing system is, is built around something that was uh, put together, you know, 100 years ago and how, how cattle operations uh, basically became cookie cutter and, and, you know, the you know, producers found a way to do things and that's how the banks were going to fund it and that's how the centralized distributors were going were gonna to buy that product from them. Well, when you start to innovate your your business as consumers are demanding they're you know they're they're crying for um, different ways of doing things as they're learning more about the food system so the producers have to innovate if they want to stay um, you know stay in the market so a financing system is one of the one of the final things uh, in some of these businesses that is that are innovating um, what Kevin's doing is obviously um, kind of going back to a way you know taking it back to mother nature but that's when you've done it for a hundred years in one fashion you know you've got to 
you've got to figure out how you're going to implement those processes of um, you know moving those animals around to to mimic mother nature so when you try to finance something like that the traditional financing systems are are not necessarily enthusiastic about um, writing big checks for you based on what their assessment of the risk is so when the when the crowdfunding piece comes in especially equity crowdfunding um, or, or kind of person-to-person uh, -person uh, lending um, you bring in investors in that are already considering their food source and then they are willing to be a part of the process to innovate their food system and so the equity crowdfunding piece is connecting those investors and people that are eating the food with the producers that are you know doing stuff on the ground so ag crowdfunding is is starting to you know pop up on the radar especially you know when the market has these shocks um, there are people looking for the type of risk return profile that that an ag operation um, specifically cattle you know uh, will provide and so it's the, the equity crowdfunding piece is actually becoming um, something that people are starting to look at right now the interesting thing is that the pandemic you know from the economic point of view i would imagine um, makes this type of investment uh, even more interesting from a purely uh, numbers standpoint, given that interest rates are really uh, close, close, getting close to zero, and will will stay there for some time to come, probably, um, which is good and helps you know the economy from some points of view. But if you're an investor or you're looking to you know make your money work for you, that's not as attractive. So has the pandemic, um, have you seen more interest in these types of crowdfunding projects over the past few months? Has your interest level been the same? Do you think it's people are motivated by the food source piece or is, you know, finances and sort of what's happening economically starting to play into it also? And so I, I'd say it's a little bit of both, Jennifer. We, we hear from our investors, and they all have their own unique reasons for uh, allocating capital into our offerings. But uh, uh, some of it is definitely the sustainability piece and the interest in evolving the food system and kind of voting for their dollars, just like someone might purchase grass-fed meat because it's good for the economy, it's good for them. Um, our investors are investing in grass-fed meets because it's good for it's good for the economy and it's 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 good for their uh their health but it's also good for their um portfolios and there's several reasons as you mentioned the historically low interest rates which are probably not going to go up anytime soon so people are starving for some sort of yield that's not correlated with the stock market and at the same time we see the stock market it's been a pretty bumpy ride this year uh both up and down and and when people invest in things like uh, LFM's project where Kevin's cows are going to continue to grow no matter what, who, who gets elected president, no matter what the economy does, uh, they're going to continue to graze and eat and grow and he, people are going to continue to eat uh, grass-fed meat and his products. So it's a nice non-volatile sort of investment from just hedging your portfolio. Okay. Well, we are, I, I think this is a great time to take a quick break because when we come back, I really want to get into the grass-fed environmental farming livestock plant protein uh, conversation. And it's, it's rather complex because there are a lot of different moving parts, but I think it's you know, increasingly relevant, especially when we see in headlines today, I was reading the news before we got on, you know, Colorado is seeing one of the largest, you know, wildfires in history that they're having. So it, it's almost really a perfect storm of all these different things that are happening in the world right now, from the environmental issues to the pandemic to, you know, food supply and everything that people are, you know, really on high alert and um, you know, the documentary Kiss the Ground and the conversation that we're having and, and Kevin's new project with the with the ranch, it, it really all is is culminating at really the perfect moment in time. It's it's uncanny. And there's a part of it that's distressing because of, you know, all of the um, just really record crises that are happening 
But it's also an interesting moment of, of opportunity and an interesting um, opportunity to change also, which is um, what I think makes us all hopeful. So let's take a quick break and find out who the sponsor is of this show. Um, we are hopeful here at Heritage Radio Network every day because we produce live radio shows talking with people who are making food, celebrating food, and recording food. Our collective um, history when it comes to what we eat is so important, and we are grateful to have companies like this one sponsor us. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is um, kind of out in the farm, out west. We are talking with the founder, CEO, and COO of a company called Harvest Returns. You may have remembered them from back in 2019. We had them on the show, episode 168. Harvest Returns is a crowdfunding platform for agriculture, uh, which sort of democratizes the process, lets people participate in where their food comes from, and gives small businesses, gives new farmers an opportunity to really pursue a business exactly the same way a tech entrepreneur would. Joining us from Harvest Returns is Chris Raleigh and Austin Manis. If you want to check out their offerings and what they do, you can find them online at harvestreturns.com and on social media at Harvest Returns. Harvest Returns recently did a raise for a grass-fed cattle ranch in California with Kevin Muno, who is the president of Landscape Function Management. Um, it is really an interesting project. Uh, project, I think, is probably too small a word. It's an interesting business, and it's an interesting type of farming to be talking about right now. To sort of give an a, a overview of what's happening in the agricultural landscape, for many years on this show, we've been talking about plant-based proteins, everything from Impossible Burger to different types of milks to different types of uh, butters, ice creams, all made from plants. And most of the entrepreneurs who have started these businesses have started plant-based protein businesses because of the environment and simply put because raising cattle is very widely noted as being one of the biggest uh, issues, concerns, problems for the environment in terms of CO2, in terms of water consumption, in terms of methane and greenhouse emissions. And so the effort to get people to consume fewer animal proteins, the, the idea is the result will be a better environment. 
we very rarely hear about creating a better farm as creating a better environment. And I think one of the interesting points to bifurcate the cattle and animal agriculture conversation is simply the type of farm. I think so many of these plant-based protein businesses, when they talk about the environment, they're talking about industrial meat farming, which we all know is terrible for so many reasons um, for people and for the planet and for the animals themselves. So we're coming to this at a time when everybody is really hyper-focused on what's happening to the environment because of the, the different natural disasters that are happening, what's happening with our food supply because we're all at home and we need to know where it's coming from, how healthy is our planet and our food supply because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. It's sort of a perfect storm of all these things. And it's kind of uncanny. There's a documentary called Kiss the Ground, which came out on Netflix back in September. And it sort of articulates the whole idea about how almost every single one of these issues can be solved with regenerative farming. So, uh, Kevin, did, did I miss anything, do you think, in sort of the overview? Oh, you did a great job there. Yeah, it was nicely, nicely framed. <laughs> so uh. now tell us why and how the regenerative cattle farming works. Tell us what that means, because most people are sort of familiar with you know, the big, industri- the big industrial farms that we've seen on TV and in the movies and, and people, you know, have a good visual image of that. But I don't know that most of our listeners know what regenerative farming is. Sure, sure. Yeah, great question, Jennifer. Um, I'd say that the main reason regenerative agriculture and regenerative farming work is because we are employing the wisdom of over a billion years of evolution of nature, right? Nature has been building soil and creating grasslands for literally millions and billions of years, right? And so really all we're doing as farmers and regenerative ranchers is looking at that wisdom of how nature has built soil and we're helping it along, right? So now before er- you go any further, one of the things that was uh edifying for me when I was, you know, researching this show and watching the documentary, what's the difference between soil and dirt? Everybody yeah. talks a lot about soil and soil health. For somebody who lives in New York City in the concrete jungle for the you know the past few decades, soil and dirt seem to be the same thing to me. Yeah, yeah, great question. I'd say the, in one word, it's life, right? So dirt is, is lifeless soil. There's no microbiology in it, no bacteria, fungi, nematodes, protozoas. Soil has life, right? It's got all this um, uh, teeming microbiology in it. And so really our goal as farmers and ranchers is to encourage that life by the practices that we, that we use. Soil and life, so important. You know, we talk about uh, terroir when we talk about wine and when, we, you know, fancy, fancy, expensive uh, agricultural things, um, how important the terroir and the dirt and the soil is that these certain things come from. You know, when mm-hmm, you go mm-hmm. grow grapes in Bordeaux, they talk about everything that the soil gives to the grapes that give the wine that profile. And so, right. I mean, are we talking about things from uh, um, that that wind up being about flavor and yeah. texture? Are we talking about actually sure. the the life sustaining beyond the dirt soil. Yeah, again, a great, great point. But it, it, it's, it's all of that, right? It's, it's all connected. So, so, the healthier the soil, the healthier the plant. Your, your, your bricks levels, your sugars, literally, you know, go up more. Whether it's in the vegetable that you're eating or, or the, the wine grape that you're picking uh, to make wine. So, 
when when there's more life in the soil, they're able to uh, extract the minerals and the micronutrients of of that what was once dirt and transfer that into the plant. And then that's what we taste in a good homegrown tomato or, you know, in a wine that has, you know, good minerality and terroir or uh, quite frankly, in a, in a, in a steak, you know, we, we can taste that flavor of the grasses that that animal is eating. And if it has a higher brick score or more nutrient density in the grass, that animal is going to have more flavor too. And, and there's so much research out there that's, that's growing with this trend too. You're, you're starting to hear a lot about the microbiome, right? And uh, many scientists are saying that this is, you know, the, 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 the most important discovery of, of this century is that we're actually uh, more, uh, <laughs> our organism, us as a human, you know, being, we're, we're, we're more uh, non-human cells than we are human cells, right? We have one trillion human cells. We have nine trillion other cells that live in symbiosis with our body. And all that is, is, is really micro microorganisms from from the bacteria and fungi that live in our gut to all these different microsites i went to a presentation by by uh uh one of the the leading microbiome uh specialists here in san diego his name's dr rob knight he runs the american gut biome project and he gave this presentation and these microsites are fascinating because they have all these different dna sort of sequences so that the the microbes that live in our armpit are different than the microbes that live in our nose that are different than the microbes that live in our gut and each one has its own dna sequence that's different than the others so there's groupings are are completely different and probably serve different you know different uh uh purposes right and so i think what we're finding is this soil gut flavor you know uh, this this total health connection and it's it's really amazing i think when you get into it it has been for me because it's drawn a big circle around what i've been doing and sort of my gateway into this movement was really food and so it's drawn a big circle around it for me and and being out in nature people are happier and that's another one way to you know inoculate your microbiome and when you garden for yourself and you get your hands in soil you're having a connection we can now prove that with science so there's a whole holistic picture here that starts to come into play when you when you dive into this regenerative agriculture world. So we talk about how important the soil and the terroir is, and you have good, healthy soil, and that grows great plants and things. And we all know, even now, um, I, I have saved on my desktop the article um, from NASA that has a list of the 10 plants that I should buy to put into my home while I'm spending more time here because yeah. plants are going to create more oxygen for me, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to take the CO2 and they're going to create oxygen, which is going to create a better environment for me. And that's also a piece of the regenerative agriculture and regenerative farming as well, is that healthier soil, then you have more plants, plants produce more oxygen, but then the critical pieces, they absorb more CO2. And then the ground also can absorb more CO2 because the soil has all these living things in it. Correct. So yeah, that's, talk that's part of, that's part of the, I think that's a piece that people understand, you know, in terms of, oh, it's great to go walking in nature. It's great to have plants in my apartment because of that. Um, sometimes we see a headline of, you know, uh, New York City, we're going to plant 100 trees, you know, to make air quality better. Uh, but this is a really important piece of why the regenerative farming then becomes a restorative piece to the environment as well. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and we, we describe that as the liquid carbon pathway, right? So, um, plants take in that photo photosynthesis and, and create sunlight literally into sugars, right? And those sugars feed the microbiology and the microbiology eat each other and they produce certain liquids and glues and, and that, you know, eventually gets transferred into humus in the soil and long-term carbon storage. We can, humus can last up to a hundred years in the soil. So that's really all we're doing. Uh, like you said there, Jennifer is trying to mimic nature to get more green things growing on the land throughout more of the year and, uh, and, and re, generate that liquid carbon pathway that has existed, you know, for thousands of years, because nature abhors bare ground. 
that's why we have things like weeds and such. You know, nature knows how to heal itself. All we're doing is accelerating that process through the appropriate management of cattle or cover crops or compost. We're trying to get more green things growing on the land so we can sequester more carbon. So now let's talk about the cows and let's talk about the grass-fed beef and and if we listen to the sales pitch on all of these plant-based proteins, cows are noted as being one of the largest consumers of water, one of the greatest emitters of methane gases, um, not being um, a very good transaction in terms of the resources required to raise one, and then the benefit that people would have from, you know, the the animal product. So now you have your your healthy soil and your plants and all these things. The green things are growing. I think everybody understands that a hundred percent. How that's all great and good. Now explain how when you drop some cows into that beautiful green image, how do they fit into the equation? Because that's the piece I think that's perhaps the new piece that people might not be as familiar with, because we all know green is, is great, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's not an image or a concept that comes naturally for folks that um, really aren't connected with animals or how they operate. And so what they see from documentaries such as Cowspiracy or, you know, the popular vegan documentaries that you see online is just cows and feedlots, right? Well, cows spend the majority of their life actually on the land, right? And when we manage them properly and regeneratively using holistic management practices where they're actually moved strategically and bunched strategically on the land and only stay in a given area might be an acre for a day and then they're moved to a new pasture what this does is it mimics how herds herbivores think of the wildebeest on the you know savannas in africa or the buffalo the 30 million buffalo that used to roam here in the great plains in north america they were all bunching and moving to protect themselves from predators um, wolves and mountain lions and, and actual lions in Africa. So think of humans' role as just the, the role of the predator. And instead of, you know, getting wolves and, and things like that out there to, to get these animals to bunch and move, um, we are using things like electric fencing or virtual fencing or, in our case, uh, herding on, on horseback, you know, traditional means of, of moving animals around a landscape. And so what they do is they, they heavily dung and urinate an area for a short period of time, but then that land gets oftentimes up to a year uh, to rest. And in brittle ecosystems, which uh, is most of the West in North America, the rumen of the animal is the only place where uh, the grass or vegetation can actually break down, right? It's a wet environment full of micro that cows have four stomachs so they go and they graze that grass they consume it it gets inoculated with the microbiology and returns to the ground in the form of dung and urine right and so that's the only place that that grass in a in a brittle dry ecosystem can actually start to cycle and be returned to the soil if that grass grows up tall and doesn't have a livestock plant or livestock animal um, a cow or a goat or a, sh a sheep to graze it, then it's just going to oxidize in the sun and emit carbon back up into the atmosphere. So in, in dry land landscapes, which are increasingly more uh, space and land in the world, you need the, the, the animal, the, the rumen of the animal uh, to break down that above ground vegetation and return it back to the soil and, and create that whole process of feeding the soil and nutrient cycling is really what we call it. So it's, it's crucial, uh, especially in dryland landscapes. Now in New York or the East Coast where it's more humid and wet, um, you'll see if you leave a grassland or uh, a landscape for too long without anim any animal impact, it actually will self-regenerate itself, right, and, and turn back into a forest if that's the climax, you know, ecosystem for that given piece of land. Think about the Mayan civilizations that, you know, stopped farming, you know, and all of the, the, the jungle sort of consumed it. And we're, we're now discovering all these old 
um, uh, ruins and, and pyramids and, and sites that they have. Well, that would say humid. So animals are a little bit less crucial in areas such as that because they can self-regenerate. By the way, an ocean is a, a self-regenerating system. So if we rest it from fishing, it will regenerate itself uh, uh, much like a humid e ecosystem on land. But a dry land ecosystem on land requires animal impact for it to be uh, built up again and, and, and for the soil to build. So the key component is, or one of the key components is uh, sort of moderation, moderation of the animals being on the land and putting things into the land, but also taking things out. So by eating and grazing, they deplete a little bit, but they're there for a short period of time and then they move on so that no one area is excessively depleted and they're all sort of left to continue on their way. As you said, mimicking what was happening when animals could migrate and move without, you know, any concern for where they were going or, you know, any danger of anything. Or maybe they were moving because of the danger, but it was a different kind of danger back then. Right. Yeah, correct. Exactly. It's a very interesting idea. And um, I mean, I, I, that, that's perhaps just being a little casual, like, oh, what a great idea. I should try that. Um, but <laughs> I think it's, it's more uh, of a relearning or recognizing or remembering things that have worked historically in the past and then how you can uh, create that situation in a, in a modern template, which when those past elements don't really exist in the same way today. It's, all, it's notable that I think there are so many different points of entry to this idea, and there are so many ideas that point to this, like athletes eating grass-fed meats and the different types of diets, like people being more interested in organic and where their food comes from, like people being um, more interested in, in the way things are raised and all these different ideas that are in different camps or in different uh, demographic groups that they all really do ultimately interconnect in, in a very interesting way. I wonder, um, I would just be curious um, from the three of you just to hear your, your point of view really quickly to kind of recap it all together. The three of you are all relatively young. Um, you know, and you're not, you know, you're not in your 60s or 70s, you're not, you know, lifetime, you know, farmers and things like that, but you, you're all in a, in the same space and have a, a point of view about using um, finance and agriculture to uh, create something. But these things that you're trying to create take time. Where where do you see, Kevin, where do you see your ranch being? How long will it take for it to be working su successfully? Chris and Austin, um, how do you envision, you know, your crowdfunding unfolding in terms of the types of businesses that you're investing in? How long will it take to see an impact, if you will? Because a lot of these regenerative ideas, part of it is that you need years, right, to see the return. I'll jump in there, Jennifer. Yeah, you're exactly right on the timeline. Um, these things take time. We are moving at the speed of biology, um, you know, and at, at the micro level, like Kevin mentioned, um, it's it's it can happen quick. And at the macro level, it may take, you know, a, a half a century. Um, you know, the, this, the regenerative process is something that you, you don't just do it for one season and, and then you're good to go for the rest of eternity. This is a process and it's it's kind of like if you've ever been on a diet or if you're trying to, you know, have, have some, um, you know, do some muscle build for if you're an athlete or something like that, you know that one cheat day can set you back weeks or months of, of the gains that you might have had doing, um, you know, on your diet or something like that. So the, the, the regenerative process is something that just needs to start to become more commonplace if we're going to actually improve the, the environment or the soil quality. So at, at, when the biology is, is, um, is working properly and you've got folks that are invested in it, um, you know, folks investing in, into that process, then that makes it, uh, you know, you start to build those building blocks. So it does take time and certain financial institutions 
may not have that flexibility and that, and that's kind of where where we come from partners returns is to to be the flexible option that can connect the flow of capital into these processes um, and that's what's going to make um, you know make this more long term most entrepreneurs have uh, you know six months 12 months maybe five year plans um, a lot of entrepreneurs in the food tech space have exit plans um, because the idea is to create something quickly that has value and then sell it. Do you, do you both, because you have a product that essentially, as you said, is, is something that grows over decades, are you, is your roadmap 10 years or 20 years? Do you, are you still in the entrepreneurial mode where you still look six months, 12 months out? Or what's, what's oh, your we, forecast? <clears throat> Jennifer, we'd like to show that regenerative agriculture can can pay just as comparable returns as, you know, some of the more popular Wall Street investments. And that's our goal with Harvest Returns and the money that, you know, they've given us is, is yeah, it takes some time, but it's it's not 50 year payback. You know, we're we're looking at, uh, you know, a five to 10 year payback. And, um, you know, we want it to be a, a, a good enough IRR that attracts more investment into it. You know, that's our goal. And, um, certainly it takes the soil to change over time, but we can see results from a soil perspective in, in four or five years. And then, you know, the beauty of it is it just keeps cascading upon itself, right? No one's really um, shown that the, the full potential uh, at scale, you know, we have 16,000 acres. And so um, at scale, no one's really shown the full potential of taking you know, a, a ranch that has 70% bare ground and then getting, you know, a fully regenerated perennial grassland back on it with, you know, three foot tall grass, you know, and the right type of animals. So we're hoping to, to, do, to be one of the first producers to do that in California. And we believe when we do that, we take a ranch from bare ground to, you know, tons of grass and, and really healthy soil, we'll be able to carry more animals on that. And that's going to have a positive financial impact and, and return to the investors that were uh, 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 willing and, and excited to, to give us our start in the industry. Well, that's, that's a pretty big, uh, that's a big goal, but it would be a really interesting one to watch. And if you do get your hands on a big, big parcel of land like that and start that process, I will tell you to document it every step of the way. Mm -hmm. as much as you can, because sure. um, it's one of those things where you're going to need that, you know, 10 year time lapse photography to really see the super impact. But, you know, it sometimes it's hard when you start something to know what it's going to be like at the end. But I will say coming from, a, you know, journalist point of view, document it, document all the things mm -hmm. as you can. Um and then, you know, when you have time to look back or when you start to, you know, accumulate really big changes, then um, you'll be able to have that story to share, which will make it even more impactful. Uh, before we go, we are out of time. Um, and I hope that we covered most of it. Did we cover most of everything? Um, Chris and Austin, just tell us really quickly about how people, if they are interested, can participate in Harvest Returns. Because even though we say it's crowdfunding for farms, it doesn't work quite like Kickstarter where people can go and throw in $10 and get like a t-shirt later and then <laughs> have a piece of the farm. It's, it's kind of in between, um, you know, taking a mortgage on a, uh, on a house and Kickstarter, it's somewhere in between there, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure, Jennifer. We're, we're in this, uh, just a little bit to the last question is like, we're in this for the long term. We're, we're in this to build our own profitable company, but also to work with uh, companies like Kevin's to be profitable, which is funny because when you look at like Impossible Foods, they've raised, I think, $1.4 billion. Um, and they're not nearly profitable and they may never be, but that's that's their business model. That's not our business model. It's, it's to make... Not only are our... they did a they did a huge raise during the pandemic. They took in I think it was two hundred and fifty million or two hundred and ten million or something like that earlier yeah, this it's, spring. It's, I, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if it's sustainable, but that's that's for another show maybe. But um, for for people that want to uh, find out more about Harvest Returns, obviously come to our website. One of our one of our missions is to educate 
investors. And so we have a lot of uh, content videos and, and blogs and things like that. And we encourage people that, that may have not ever invested in agriculture to go ahead and spend some time consuming that content and you know, reaching out to us and finding out what we're about before they go in and decide they might want to invest. And, and yes, investing, it's, it's not as easy as dropping in $15 and hoping you get a T-shirt. Uh, from Kickstarter, there's there's some SEC requirements. Um, there's some minimum investments, which for us generally start at five thousand dollars, which is not accessible to everyone. But we we hope it's accessible to a larger amount of people. And as SEC regulations permit us, we'll continue to try to lower that bar for investors and bring in more retail investors and things like that. And we're we're working on some projects like that, that uh, in the future. So uh, we we love to hear from people um, and take their questions and help them understand how they might be able to transform the food system as well as making a nice return with their capital. And on the other side, the, uh, the farm side, the business side, what types of, tell us really quickly what types of businesses and projects and farms you are interested in collaborating with on your platform in case somebody like Kevin might be listening and looking for an opportunity that's a little bit of a of a different path from traditional, you know, uh, financial investment. Sure, we're, we're definitely looking at, at overall. We, we like uh, sustainability and regenerative types of agriculture, but we'd certainly hear from more um, grass-fed producers like Kevin. It's a as I'm sure Kevin will attest, it's a very regional, local type of business, and it's, it's there's so much room for for growth and market share in the grass-fed meat versus the the, the conventionally finished sort of of livestock. So, grass-fed, um, local, locally grown produce, indoor produce, whether it's large-scale greenhouse projects, which we've we've worked on a couple, or a smaller indoor vertical urban suburban type of farm, we'd like to hear from those producers who might have you know, called a few banks and been frustrated and want to try something different. Okay. Well, there you have it. Regenerative agriculture with harvest returns. Um, maybe uh, something we'll be hearing much more about is my guess, given the popularity of the Netflix documentary. And it's actually really just coincidental. You know, I hadn't heard much about the documentary until I spoke with Chris and Austin to get ready for this show, and it really dovetails nicely in terms of current events and and what's happening in the world. So I think um, probably we'll hear much more about it, especially with people like Woody Harrelson and Giselle Bündchen on board. Um, Giselle Bündchen and her husband Tom Brady could certainly make a big impact in the world with these types of things in terms of uh, getting the word out. And maybe, who knows, maybe even investing. In something. Maybe they should be Harvest Returns investors. If you would like to check out Harvest Returns, visit them online, harvestreturns.com. I want to thank Chris Raleigh and Austin Manis for coming on the show from Texas. If you want to check out Kevin Muno's businesses, um, the website we have is Ecology Artisans. Is that the best place for people to go, Kevin? We're, we're building our, our direct-to-consumer site now, and actually um, Pastureland Provisions, Facebook, and Instagram, we're, we're building lists and interest right there, but we'll, we'll be able to have a direct-to-consumer uh, uh, site up soon uh, for e-commerce for actually selling our meat. So um, if you follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Pastureland Provisions, um, that, that, that's the best place to know when our, our website is going to launch and uh, when uh, you might actually be able to buy some meat from us. Well, perfect. You'll have to let us know and maybe come for back sure. and and tell us how things are going. I guess we can schedule you in for five years from now and you can tell us how <laughs> the land has regenerated. Perfect. You laugh, but we've been on the show for fi- we've been on the air for five years already. We That's went great. live in January of 2015 for Tech Bytes. Heritage Radio Network has been on the air for more than 10 years. So um, we didn't know, but we 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 have some runway and are looking to go another five years and another 10 years if you like the show come back and see us again next week if you love the show go to heritageradionetwork.org click the beating heart and make a donation we're a 501c3 nonprofit. we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members who are mostly listeners like you grants and underwriters It's so important right now to share 
news, share resources, and share the things that we love so we can stay connected today and we can record them to keep them and listen to them tomorrow. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.